Smells Jesus-y. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. We are the aroma of Christ. God has spoken in many ways. Welcome to Smells Jesus-y, a podcast from Three Crosses Church. Today, Ken St. Clair will be speaking to us from Matthew chapter 20, verses 1 to 16, the grace economy. Here's Cam. I think Australians love uh, the idea of merit. Um, as a society, we desire also to give everybody a fair go. So that means we need to create the space for everybody to have equal opportunity so that they, with their skills and innovation, they may aspire to reach the highest level and so achieve success, as our society describes it. So advancement, in that sense, is based upon merits like performance, intelligence, credentials and education. At my youngest son's school, Matthew, uh, there is the merit certificate that's given to those students the teacher deems to have achieved meritorious work, who have deemed to have done really well at, their, at a particular area of their, of their schoolwork. And often when you go to our school's assembly, half the time is taken up with handing out merit awards and describing why that child should be getting a merit award. <clears throat> I once knew a boy who was also in primary school at one stage and who had a teacher that gave out a merit prize every week to the student she thought was worthy. This boy was in his befuddled best, tried to be worthy of receiving this merit prize. After all, back then, the merit prize was a really exciting thing called a figurine smurf. And he probably was not particularly outstanding most weeks, and there were weeks when things went wrong and he got into trouble, but he was the last in the class to receive a prize. But finally, toward the end of the year, after other people got multiple prizes, the teacher indicated that he was close to receiving this award and he knew he didn't have much time left. I think there was only like three weeks left in the year, so I'm told. Then as the class was lining up outside to go uh, to another classroom, in his absent-mindedness, he did not see the teacher standing quietly, wanting, waiting for the class to stand quietly in line. And so she blurted out at the top of her voice, Cameron you will not be getting that merit prize this week. Devastated and confused about what exactly he had done to deserve it. Done to deserve that um, outburst from the teacher. He realised later in life that what he needed was grace. An unexpected, undeserved, unmerited kindness because he still bears that grudge today. But I tell you, grace is so sweet to those who are last. Receiving grace is so sweet to those who are last. And our passage today is an illustration of the merit economy and the grace economy. In order to see how sweet this passage is and understand how we are trapped in the merit economy as our way of default way of thinking and we need to grasp more deeply the grace economy, to all of a sudden to see how that grace economy, God's grace is so sweet, we need more than just those 16 verses in chapter 20. 
we need also chapter 19. Because in chapter 19, if we follow the melody along, follow the thread line through, we'll see how chapter 20 really stands out. Well, verses 1 to 16, that is. So bear with me while we flip over to chapter 19. We're going to go a quick uh, bird's-eye overview over this chapter and um, you'll see how all the episodes fit together. So there's two episodes on uh, confrontation. So we're looking at, we've talked about merit, we're on to melody. <clears throat> two episodes of confrontation and rejection of Jesus. Um, these two episodes also are about people's false confidence and they follow the merit economy. The first one is in verses 1 to 12 where the Pharisees question Jesus about divorce and their confidence is in their knowledge of the law and their ability to uphold it. And then the next um, episode of confrontation and rejection is in verses 16 to 22 where we see a rich young ruler whose confidence is in his ability to keep the law as well. So he uh, rocks up to Jesus and he says in verse 16, Teacher, what good thing must I do to get eternal life? Jesus responds, Why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. If you want to enter eternal life, keep the commandments. Which ones, he inquired. Jesus replied, You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not give false testimony, honour your father and mother and love your neighbour as yourself. All these I have kept. The young man said, what still do I lack? There's false confidence, if you ever heard it. Anyway, wedged in between these two episodes of confrontation and uh, rejection <coughs> is verses 13 to 15. And this is a little picture here of the grace economy. It's a picture here of citizens who enter the kingdom of heaven. Then people brought little children to Jesus for him to place his hands on them and to pray for them. But the disciples rebuked them. Jesus said, let the little children come to me. Do not hinder them, for the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. And when he placed his hands on them, he went away on from there. Now at first glance, um, when... It might be hard to understand how this is a picture of the kingdom of heaven, but if we flip over to 18 verse 3, we'll see a little bit more about what Jesus says about uh, little children, and then we get the idea. So in verse 1 of chapter 18, At the time the disciples came to Jesus, who then is, they asked, Who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? He called a little child to him and placed a child among them. And he said, Truly I tell you, Unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever takes, this, takes the lowly position of this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever welcomes one such child in my name welcomes me. So here we have a picture of total dependence the child's position is lowly. They have no of their own, none of their own status or, um, or privileges or anything of that nature. And they're completely dependent upon uh, other people of status and position, namely their parents, who can provide for them. 
And so that is the person whom Jesus says who enters the kingdom of heaven. And so in this story, we see pictures, we see Jesus gathering people who are completely dependent upon him. We see pictures of Jesus gathering a new kingdom of people who follow, are going to be God's, who are God's people. And it's a fulfilment in the sense that Jesus has been fulfilling right throughout Matthew's gospel God's plans and promises that have been uh, presented in the Old Testament. And he's been working that fulfilling those and Matthew's very diligent in, in making sure that all those promises are fulfilled and that Jesus is the one who is the climax of the story. The second um, episode we have, the grace economy returns in verses 23 to 30 of chapter 19. Uh, Jesus says to the disciples, Truly I tell you, it is hard for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through an eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples exclaim, Well, then who then can be saved? Because I think in the background with the disciples, in the disciples thinking that if you're wealthy, you've been blessed by God. Therefore, you must be doing something right. That's their economy. This is part of their economy, which is confused by merit. So you must have done something really well with God, therefore you've uh, uh, got lots of wealth, therefore you have lots of resources and time to devote yourself to doing what is right. You're not under pressure to uh, cut corners and to cheat in, in, in order to provide for your life. You're actually able to spend your resources and energy to follow God's law wholeheartedly. So Peter's observation Next is that, well, who then can be saved? And Jesus' important response is, with man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. So indeed, that is right. It is impossible for us, and we will explore this a little bit later. So Peter's response, though, to that is, well, we've left everything to follow you. What then will there be for us? And I think this is an expression of, we're completely dependent upon you, Jesus. Um... If we can't be saved by anything we've done, well, what's there for us? We're completely depending on you. We've given everything away to follow you. And Jesus responds with this wonderful picture of encouragement and grace. He doesn't rebuke Peter for that, for anything that he, any mixed motives he might be saying here, but he encourages him that they will receive um, a wonderful uh, position of authority in the kingdom of heaven and that they will enjoy privileges that will far go beyond any costs they might have endured in this life. Anyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or fields for my sake will receive a hundred times as much and will inherit eternal life. So the response of Jesus is, well, whatever has cost you in this life, what you will receive in the kingdom of heaven will be so overwhelmingly generous in comparison, you will know that you could never possibly have earned that. You could never possibly have enjoyed that, deserved that. It is so, it's a hundredfold. Um, it's overwhelmingly generous.
Now, the disciples who have left everything, I think, are those who, in the world's eyes, are considered last. And the religious leaders and the wealthy are those, who, in the world's eyes, who are seen as first. So that's why in verse 30 we have there, but the many who are first will be last and the, and the many who are last will be first. And that's repeated again in verse 16 of chapter 20. And smack bang in the middle is our parable of what we're going to look at. And so it's a parable about who is the first and who is the last. It's a parable about the merit economy, as I've termed it, and the grace economy. So, let's, uh, so that's the melody. That's how uh, chapter 20 fits. Um, so let's look at this illustration of how God's grace is the reversal of the merit economy. Now I'm going to retell it in today's setting. Um, hopefully I'm accurate, being out of the workforce as I have been, but bear with me. A contractor goes to a labour hire company organising to have workers ready for him to work from 6am to 6pm um, for $300 for that day's work. It's all agreed. Uh, so at 6am his workers arrive, but by 9am he needs more, so he contacts the labour hire company for more workers. He says that he'll pay them accordingly. So it's assumed that they'll be based, be based on that 25-hour uh, $25 hourly rate. By midday, he needs uh, more, so he goes back and gets more workers, and then also again at 3pm. At 5pm, he asks the labour hire if they have any more. They say they have a few on their books, they're not very reliable workers, but no one else has hired them for a few weeks, so they're desperate, and so they can be there, and so they are hired, and they are there. At 6pm, um, the contractor organises the pay packets. They all want to be paid in cash. Those who, started are, are paid f those who started last are paid first, and they get $300 for one hour. Those who started last at 5pm are paid first, and they get $300 for that one hour's work. Five till six. When those who are hired first saw this, they figured that if those guys got 300 bucks for that one hour's work, they did their maths pretty quickly, they reckon they were going to earn $3,600 for that 12 hours of work, for that whole day. But they also only got 300. So they complained to the manager, the contractor, and said, what's the story? It's not fair. Those blokes who hired you hired last only worked for one hour and you gave them equal pay to us for who have worked 12 hours. How is that fair? Just a minute, the contractor says, you agreed to work $300 for that day. I have not done you any wrong. I have not been unfair to you. This is what was agreed. So take your pay and go. I chose to give the last workers what I gave them. That's my choice, it's my money, and it's not your money. Why does my generosity raise your hackles? Why does that jar you that I choose to be generous to those in the last hour? Does it jar you? Do you find it jarring that those people in that last hour receive $300? 
And I think it's jarring. It's jarring for me because I'm deeply hooked on merit, on the merit economy, and I'm so unfamiliar about grace. You see, this passage is a warning for us who are soaked in merit that's all around us because of pride. We may well submit to the idea of being saved by God's grace, graciousness towards us in Jesus, but often now we think we must pay our way for in, in order to continue to enjoy God's favour and kindness to have the kingdom of heaven. That is a great warning for us, where pride can set in and think that it's actually God's going to continue to be kind to me because of what I continue to do. Or if I say, if I stuff up, I think that somehow my sin and, and, and stubbornness towards God means that that can diminish his grace towards me and therefore I need to work extra harder to make it up. Or are we upset and resentful that others who have believed and haven't served as diligently and as faithfully and have passed away and enjoying now the kingdom of heaven, are we resentful of that? Does that irritate us? Well, that's the needle. That's the... Um, the thing that uh, this passage digs into us. But primarily this passage is about encouragement. If we think of the disciples... Um, oh, I've got carried away again, sorry. If we think about the um, disciples here, they, I think, are seeking reassurance. They have left everything to follow Jesus. They're completely dependent on him. And they're probably feeling pretty last. They're seeing rejection after rejection by basically their religious leaders, the Pharisees rejecting Jesus, and by the wealthy who have status in their society rejecting Jesus. And so they're wondering, well, where, what is, what, Jesus, what is there for us? What can we look forward to? Can we enjoy the kingdom of heaven? And when Jesus said to them, you will enjoy a hundred times as much, I want to think about this a bit more carefully. That is 10,000% on your investment. So in a financial sense, if I uh, purchased a house and 10 years later I doubled my money, that is a 100% increase. Jesus not, doesn't promise a 100% increase. He promises 10,000%. Ten thousand percent that's an overwhelming generous gift. And so they're feeling under pressure, and he's telling them to stick fast, it'll be worth it. Any cost that you have received or bear, had to bear under in this life will be richly rewarded with ten thousand percent benefit. You might be feeling under pressure yourself. You might have decided that in your workplace or in conversations with your neighbours or friends you're willing to stick your head above the parapet and make a statement about the gospel that might be jarring for your friends 
and they might have con- con- uh, consider you now slightly bigoted in the way you think about life. And so in that sense, you might be feeling pretty last. And I was listening on uh, the 91.3 Sport FM um, last week, and there they were speaking about Israel Folau um, and his call at this point to raise support for his court case. Is everyone up with that story about him? They're all, no one's been living under a rock or anything lately. Good, eh? Well, the three panellists on this um, sports show were saying... They didn't get why he was standing up, and I sort of get that. I didn't expect him to understand. But one guy concluded with a snide remark that Israel Flower is just a bigot. And if you think about it, it's such a, oh, it's a strong word. In the Oxford Dictionary, it's a person, it says it's a person who has a very strong, unreasonable belief or opinion about race, religion or politics and will not listen to or accept the opinions of anyone who disagrees with him. Now, that's a very unfair characterisation of Israel Flower. If you've watched him um, on the player's voice or seen him being interviewed or even went and listened to some of his sermons, he does not present himself as someone who is not humble and able to hear and understand other people's points of view, but at the same time uh, say, well, this is what I believe to be true and this is what I'm willing to follow. And so, you know, he gets... Now, he's, if you think you're under pressure, imagine being on the front, well, not the front page, but having a whole full page spread in the Australian about you and, um, you know, being on Channel 7 Sunday program or the, the Channel 9 Today show. That's pressure. And here, this passage is for someone like us in a small way, like Israel Folau, in a big way, to know of God's grace, that though he might be feeling last, he might have a sense that he is right out on the outlier of what our society thinks is a reasonable way to be a human being. Jesus says to him, whatever it's cost you, even if it costs you your $4 million income and plus all your endorsements and all your eight properties, whatever it costs you, you'll receive 10,000 times as much. And it's worth it. So friends, what is a grace-filled life? A life that depends upon richly knowing it'll be worth it. I think firstly for us, it's welcoming the outsider, the person our world considers last often. It's being desiring to to have those people come to know this great offer of grace. Jesus welcomes such people so willingly, whether they be little children, whether they be the tax collector, the person who who has uh, swindled people, whether it be the desperate for survival uh, lady who's, who's prostituting herself. Jesus welcomes those whom our society considers a last and it's, it's a great sign of grace and kindness. So where have, we, where have we been? We have seen that the merit economy has its claws in us. We're really 
driven by merit, our society is driven by merit. And we've seen the grace economy, which is just so overwhelmingly undeserved. It's for people who haven't earned it. It's for people who often in this world are considered last. And it's meant to encourage us and to strengthen us to keep counting the cost but saying it'll be worth it. Let me pray. Our gracious our Lord and Father, um, we give you thanks for Jesus. We thank you for uh, the way he so, um, by following your will and loving you, so clearly uh, proclaimed um, life through him. We thank you that his, uh, that your grace shines through him and his teaching and that we can grow in trusting in him. Help us, Lord, to um, keep guarding ourselves against thinking our, our own merit is what saves us and please help us to keep growing in and soaking ourselves in the richness of your grace. For Jesus' sake, amen.